Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, it's our custom to always have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin the study of God's Word. It gives us the opportunity to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one working in us, using God's Word to produce spiritual growth and maturity in us. The Holy Spirit does not take over our volition. Every now and then somebody gets that idea that, well, when you're in fellowship, the Holy Spirit sort of kicks in and does it for you. No, He is the one who is simply bringing to our mind the things that we have studied, the things that we have learned as we study the Word, uh, constantly reminding us, to obey, to apply, to put into practice that which we have studied. And it is in that process that he produces spiritual growth. But when we sin, we stifle that process. Scripture calls it quenching, grieving the Holy Spirit. And the only way to recover fellowship is to confess our sins, which means simply to admit or to acknowledge to God that which we have done, the sin that we have uh, committed, and he instantly forgives us of those sins and then cleanses us of all other unrighteousness, those sins that we have not confessed, those sins that we have forgotten, those sins that we did not know were sins, the slate is wiped clean, fellowship is recovered, and we can continue our forward momentum in the spiritual life. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today. We're thankful that you have given us the opportunity to be in a place where your word is faithfully taught, where your word is proclaimed, where we can be challenged by the truth of your word. Father, we know that it is ultimately that God, the Holy Spirit, who takes your word, applies it to our lives. He is the one who works uh, behind the scenes to produce spiritual growth in us as we walk by the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, as we walk in the light. Spiritual growth, maturity takes place. Father, we pray that we might not take this lightly, that we might not take for granted the privilege we have to study your word and to have Bibles in front of us and to have a solid Bible teaching available to us because this is such a, it's been such a rare thing in the history 
of the world and the history of Christianity that the vast majority of those who have uh, lived as believers, trusted in you, have not even had copies of the Scripture in their own language before them. What a privilege we have. And now, Father, as we study your word, may you take the light of your word and shine it in our souls that we might come to understand more profoundly that which we think that is wrong and to challenge us to conform to the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Revelation, and this morning we get into the details of Revelation chapter 6. It is in Revelation chapter 6 that the real momentum of prophecy takes place, the, the actions that are going to characterize uh, the tribulation. And in the very first of the opening of these sealed judgments, the very first sealed judgment, we are introduced to the system that will promote one of the major uh, figures in the tribulation period, a person who is known as the Antichrist. And one of the major themes that we see in Scripture related to this personage who will come on the scene to uh, develop his own kingdom and to uh, challenge and to, to, to challenge God to martyr millions and millions of believers that is the principle of deception. And these are principles that we'll see, many principles that we'll see as we go through our study of Revelation, not only relate to the specifics of the details of things that will happen sometime in the future and we won't be there, but these trends are still present today. We have taught on the rapture that at any moment Jesus Christ can return for the church, for his bride. We who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have trusted in him at that instant are given eternal life. We're entered into union with Christ. We become, uh, the Bible says, the bride of Christ and he will return for us in the air. First Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, verses 12 through 16 describes this event that he will he will come in the air and we, the dead in Christ, will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And so we will not see these things take place. But we don't know when that's going to happen. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year or the next decade or even the next century. But just as you and I do not know when this will occur, Satan does not know when this will occur. And therefore, in every year, in every decade, in every generation, he has to have his man ready to go. He has to be ready to move to implement his system of world government. And so, even though we may not be in the raptured generation, and we can never know, and there are people today who will uh, try to say that, well, we see this happening and that happening, and so we are the raptured generation. No one can know. Jesus in his humanity told his disciples that no one knows the hour. He did not know in his humanity. We are to live our life each day as if it could happen today. And one of the things that we see in this is that Satan always has these systems, always has... Uh, individuals and systems ready to move into that vacuum once the restrainer comes, or once the restrainer is removed, so that he can implement his systems. And so uh, even though these things that we talk about relate to the future, the principles, the trends, 
are just as true for today as they will be in that end time. And so we have to fortify our souls with the Word of God, fortify our souls with uh, doctrine, and apply it on a regular basis. Now, every now and then, and I don't hear this too much, but I hear this complaint every once in a while that things just, you know, I get into a lot of detail in Scripture. A lot of folks like that. Sometimes uh, I get into different areas of philosophy. I get into different areas related to creation, evolution, things like that, that a lot of times folks aren't as familiar with. And sometimes when we get into prophecy, we bring together so many different aspects of Scripture. Sometimes people feel overwhelmed. Well, I'm always pleased when I get an email like one I received yesterday. This is from a young girl who's uh, about 12, or I think she's 13 years of age, and she uh, wrote an excited email to me yesterday. And she said, I thought you'd really appreciate this because I certainly did. I was at my friend's birthday slumber party yesterday, and for some reason we started talking about dying. I forgot how it started. Then I told the party guests, all but one of them were, all but one person there were my friends, and I started talking to them about how I wasn't afraid to die and why. I told them I wanted to die with my family and all the other believers at the rapture. As I talked deeper into the conversation, I mentioned the abomination of desolation, the 144,000 Jews, and so on. Thanks to your wonderful studies, everyone agreed with me and said they weren't afraid to die now like me, and I felt uh, very special at that moment. I really thank you for all those lessons that had come together for me in a single moment, and it all clicked in our minds. I was very proud of being a believer as much as I always did. Thanks for your awesome lessons, and please continue on. So that ought to challenge all of you that you stick with it, watch, come every week, then you will, uh, it'll all come together for you too. Okay. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 introduces us to the first seal judgment. So as is my custom, I try to give a little bit of an overview as to what is going on in the chapter. We see at the beginning of these six seal judgments that the first four relate to four horsemen. They are referred to usually as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we read in verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And as these seals are opened, and you, we move our way through the first four seals, we will see that there are four different colored Horses. Now, this isn't the first time that we have colored horses appear in prophetic text. It's not the first time we have the number four appear. We'll see four winds that appear and, and four angels holding back the four winds of heaven at the beginning of chapter 7. So this is a little bit of a preview of what will happen. Uh, the, as I pointed out before, Revelation doesn't necessarily move in a chronological order. Chapter 6 focuses on events from an earthly perspective. The, as the judgments are poured out on the earth, uh, seal judgment 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And if you notice, at the end of the chapter, uh, 
There is a question raised after the sixth seal judgment, and the question is, who can survive these judgments? And so chapter 7 will shift our focus from what's happening on the earth to what's happening in the heavenly realm, and will answer that question as to who will survive these horrendous judgments. And so chapter 7 takes place at roughly the same time as chapter 6. And if you look at the first verse in chapter 7, we read, After these things, which doesn't mean that this chapter takes place after 6, it just means this is the next thing I saw. It's like looking at this picture and then looking at this picture. So uh, it's the order of his visions, not the order of events necessarily. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. And often we have the number four because it speaks of, uh, in a figure of speech, the four corners of the earth. It speaks of the totality of the earth that is coming under under judgment. But in chapter 7, we'll see that these four winds, and actually the word translated winds could be, could be spirits, but it, here it's probably winds, and it relates to judgment. Now, the interesting thing is in Zechariah chapter 6, there is also a reference to four chariots pulled by four teams of differently colored horses. Zechariah 6, 1, we read, Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked. Notice the same kind of language we have in, in uh, Revelation. In fact, we'll spend more time in Zechariah as we uh, unpack it in order to get the background for images and events in Revelation. Four chariots were coming from between two mountains, the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. With the third chariot, white horses. And with the fourth chariot, dappled or spotted horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, Zechariah says, What are these, my Lord? And the answer is, the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits or winds. It's ruach in the Hebrew, which is the word for also translated winds. These are the four spirits or winds of heaven. See the same kind of thing we have in Revelation 7.1. Who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. It is a picture of judgment. And so as we put these two chapters together, what we will see in chapter 7 are events that will take place at the same time as the events in chapter in chapter 6. So just to give you a little preview of coming attractions. Now in chapter 6, the focus is on these six seal judgments. Remember the imagery of the Lamb who was before the throne in chapter 4. John sees into the heavenly throne room. God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is sitting on the throne and in his hand is a is a scroll, and that scroll was sealed with seven seals, and the scroll is virtually a title deed of ownership of the planet. And when that deed, that scroll, is taken, it must be opened, and in the opening of the scroll, we see that the one who is to come, the one who will be king of the earth, the one who is fully God and fully man, and in his humanity, he will fulfill the original role of Adam and in his creation to be the king of the earth. 
and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes forward as the lamb who was slain, and he takes the scroll. And at the beginning of chapter 6, he begins to open those seals, and each seal will bring forth another judgment. These judgments are designed to bring discipline and judgment and cleansing upon the earth and to deal with all of the sin and evil that has accumulated through human history as there is a judicial uh, judicial cleansing that takes place at the end of history. So we have our seven sealed judgments that take place during the first 21 months of the tribulation period, roughly just less than two years. And we will see that the first seal is related to conquest. It's a rider on a white horse. The second seal will be open warfare, the rider on the red horse. The second, or the third seal will be rider on the black horse, and that will bring uh, economic catastrophe, which is a natural consequence. If you have world war, then you have economic uh, catastrophe and famine. And then the fourth horse is death that follows from the war and the famine on the earth. Then the fifth seal will be martyrdom. This will be unbelievable as we get into this to see what is takes place here, and it relates to events in chapter 7. And then the sixth are physical disturbances on the earth, geophysical disturbances that affect both the heavens and the earth. And we are told that this is the wrath of the Lamb being poured out upon the earth. And then the seventh seal is opened and it reveals a second series of judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and all of this will take place before the midpoint of the tribulation. So we come to six one, and we read, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder. And if you trace through the scriptures in these kinds of passages, you find that thunder is often associated with the throne of God, the voice of God. It is so loud, it is overpowering, and it is foreboding. It uh, portends something uh, drastic that is about to happen. I heard one of the four living creatures saying, and these living creatures were described in chapter 4. If you turn back with me just a minute, turn back to the, their introduction in uh, chapter 4, verse 6. There we're told that before the throne was a sea of glass, a glassy-like sea. It was like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And when we studied this, I pointed out that they were had similarities to both seraphim and cherubim. These were special orders of angels that were associated with the holiness of God, his righteousness and his uh, justice. And what we see here is that these four living creatures are, are each involved in the execution of the four, the first four judgments. 
And this uh, indicates one of the major roles of angels in the book of Revelation and during the tribulation as those who carry out the judicial decrees of God. It is angels who are who bring about the geophysical disturbances. It is angels who operate within the heavenlies, controlling various meteorological features. And so we understand from Scripture that there's this, when we look at the world around us, we can't look at it as just something physical, but that all of the physical processes that we are familiar with that scientists study in the laboratory have a, an invisible or supernatural background, and that these physiological processes are overseen by the angels, God controls everything, but he works through these intermediate causes of the angels. So God controls everything for man to even think that he has the power to uh, destroy the environment through uh, the release of uh, uh, carbon dioxide or hydrofluorocarbons or anything like that is just patently absurd. When you look at the Scripture, when you look at prophecy, you understand that prophecy is nothing more than literal, actual history written ahead of time. What we will discover is that the person who will do more to destroy the environment of this planet is God. And he is going to just completely decimate the environment during the tribulation period in ways completely unimaginable to uh, people who are concerned about global warming or any of the other environmentalist uh, factors that uh, seem to bother people today. This is nothing compared to what's going to happen uh, during the tribulation during the tribulation period. And all of these events, all of these processes are ultimately governed by the angels. And these are the intelligences that are behind these things. And on Friday night, uh, many of you went with us. We had a great crowd. We had, I think, over 60 people who went up to the uh, Memorial City Theater and saw uh, uh, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, the Ben Stein Film And if you haven't seen that yet, I encourage you to see it and see it soon because I don't know how long it will be at the theaters. And just by seeing it at the theater, it's, it boosts the whole uh, production. It supports that production. They did a fabulous job demonstrating in the film the, the just completely closed-mindedness of the American and Western civilization because it's almost as bad in Europe. Uh, their closed-mindedness towards any alternative to uh, naturalistic evolution, to Darwinistic evolution, that God would have anything to do with it. And you just saw the anger and the hatred in, in these scientists' eyes if you even suggested the most remote possibility that there might be a God, they just would just almost go berserk. And in their minds, anybody who would even believe in a God, as they said, was just... Uh, uh, probably had an IQ just just one step above that of a rock, and so they, they're just their their disrespect, their hate, their anger, their bitterness towards God is exactly what the Bible describes: is that those who deny God are so busy suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness 
that every time you see something like this comes up and, and they can't help but seeing evidence of God, it just pops up here and they just take out their sledgehammer and smash it down and then it pops up over here and they want to smash it down. And as far as they're concerned, their agenda for us is to get all Christians just, you know, you can have your religion, just go in a closet somewhere and do your thing on Sunday, but, you know, don't bring it out of the closet and bother the rest of us with it uh, the, rest of the, the rest of the year. And so this is the kind of mentality that they have is that they can explain everything just on the basis of natural physical causes. But the Bible opens our eyes to the fact that there is an entire realm of the supernatural that is involved in the running and the operation of the universe and the oversight of human history. And as believers, we can only know about that through what the Word of God says. And so we get a glimpse of it here in verses like this, and throughout Revelations we see these judgments, that the four living creatures are involved with each of these judgments. Now, these four living creatures are there and invite John to come and observe what happens with each of these judgments. And in verse 2 we read, And I looked, John says, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now let me just make a little note here as to how to understand these four horsemen. They are personifications of each one of these judgments. Okay, let me say that again. They are personifications of the judgment. That doesn't mean we have a tendency to say, oh, the first writer is the Antichrist. Well, we've jumped through three steps of logic. That's the conclusion. But he's the only one anybody ever identifies as a writer. We've got three more writers to go, and they don't represent individuals. Each rider on a horse is bringing about a series of judgments uh, that will take place in that stage in the tribulation period. So the white horse rider is the one who uh, oversees the, the judgment that allows the development of the Antichrist's political power and his kingdom uh, during this stage, early stage of the tribulation period. He comes on a white horse. Now, there are some that have said, well, the only other person who rides a white horse in Revelation is Jesus Christ at the end, so this must be Jesus Christ. No, this isn't Jesus Christ. This is representing the false uh, Christs that will dominate the political system at that time. We read last week and we studied Matthew 24 when Jesus said one of the first trends, the first things that will happen in this period is that there will be many who will come forth claiming to be Christ, claiming to be Messiahs. There will be a proliferation of false messiahs. And false messiahs will promote a pseudo-righteousness. So the rider on the white horse is one who is promoting a pseudo-righteousness. It is not the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what his white horse represents. This white horse is the pseudo-righteousness, the false system of the, of the Antichrist. He is on a white horse. He sat on it, had a bow, and a crown was given to him indicating 
a more of a reward or recognition. It's not a diademos crown, it's a stephanos crown, and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. So what we see in this first seal, in the rider on the white horse, is that he comes with a bow indicating the threat of military power, the threat of military power. He has the power, but there are no arrows in the quiver, so it indicates that he uh, conquers, but through intimidation or some other means other than through military conflict. The military conflict comes in the second seal. Second thing we see is that he is awarded the victor's crown. He is he wears a crown, a Stephanos. This is a wreath of recognition for accomplishment upon his head. So he has been honored and recognized by those uh, over whom he rules. He goes out conquering and to conquer. He This is a, a summary of what we read in some other passages we'll go to in Daniel 7, Daniel 11, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, that after the rapture, this individual will be revealed, and, and not before the rapture, so we won't see him. You can't look around and say, oh, it must be uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan, because uh, the number of the Antichrist is 666, and uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan was six letters, six letters, and six letters. It can't be Gorbachev. That birthmark isn't the mark of the beast. <laughs> it can't be... Um, can't be Bill Clinton because Daniel tells us that the Antichrist won't have the love of women in him. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, that's Hillary. That's uh, something like that. Um, you know, everybody comes along. They thought it was Henry Kissinger. They thought it was Richard Nixon. They're going to say it's Ob- uh, 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 Barack Obama. They're going to say it's Hillary. You know, every political leader that comes along, uh, somebody accuses them of being the Antichrist. But the thing is, we won't know who the Antichrist is until Jesus Christ has returned for the church. Because what we're looking for next in prophecy is the return of Jesus Christ, the blessed hope of the church. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. And when he comes for the church and the church is removed, then that will create, I believe, tremendous disorder, and it is in that chaos that nations will uh, realign themselves and into the vacuum of power that is created at that time. One will come forward who will bring a pseudo-peace and promise order out of chaos, and he is the one who is going to realign uh, the nations, especially those in the West, and that is the career of the one known as the Antichrist. So what we see here in the first seal conquest, the rider on the white horse is a personification of the Antichrist conquest as he pulls his kingdom together to give him a political base from which he will seek to rule the world. And the Antichrist will then enter into a peace treaty with Israel, and that is what begins the countdown, as we've seen in our studies in the last few weeks, of the period known as Daniel's 70th week, that last seven-year period that uh, was revealed to Daniel in the timetable of Israel's history in Daniel chapter 9. And so the Antichrist 
rises to power. He, as, as a substitute Christ, he is promising peace, world peace, stability, that uh, only can be brought by Jesus Christ, who is the true Prince of Peace. But that is why he's called the Antichrist. Now, let's look at a couple of passages in Scripture that give us some insight as to who this person is and some uh, information about how he comes to power. First key passage is a New Testament passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is an extremely significant passage on the Antichrist. And this is Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, he reminds them of what he had taught them about the rapture. He was only with them uh, about three weeks, and yet he managed to teach them a tremendous amount about the end times, about prophecy, and about uh, how the present church age would end. Uh, after he answered those questions, some questions that came up, and he answered them in First Thessalonians, some more questions came up, and he's answering those in Second Thessalonians. Apparently they were concerned about if they would see the Antichrist or if they could identify the Antichrist. So they had more questions about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Second Thess 2.1 he says, uh, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that is the rapture when uh, the Lord appears in the clouds, in the air, and we're caught up to be together with him in the air, that is the rapture. And he says, um, Paul comforts them. He says, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind. Don't get worried. Uh, if you think the Antichrist has already come, don't worry about it. It says, Don't to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter. You see, you had prophecy mongers even then. You, know, you hear people saying, well, it's the end times, the uh, world is going to end, doom is near, uh, the Antichrist is already here, and they've been saying that for 2,000 years. He says, don't let anybody trouble you. Uh, by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And the term day of Christ is a technical term. It's a synonym for the term day of the Lord, which is a term that describes the judgments of God in the tribulation period. Sometimes it describes the entire tribulation period, and often it is used just to describe those final intense judgments, the bold judgments which immediately precede the battle, the campaign of Armageddon, and the return of the Lord at that particular time. So context tells us just what the expanse is on that term, day of the Lord. It is, it's not a technical term for one event at one time, context indicates, but it does usually indicate in most places, some places it can refer to the millennium, but in a couple of places, in most places it refers to the tribulation judgments. So, uh, don't be worried, he says, what he's saying, as if the day of Christ had already come. In other words, certain things have to happen before the Antichrist is revealed and before the tribulation takes place. And so in verse 3 he says, let no one deceive you by any means. And here we see the emphasis on deception. Again and again, we are warned against being deceived. We have to think, we have to observe, we have to have the right uh, categories in order to make sure we are not deceived because Scripture says we are sheep, and that's not a compliment. 
We are easily misled. We are easily deceived. We, we are always prone to follow uh, a new charismatic personality. We're always prone to follow somebody who uh, gives uh, makes us feel good, somebody who uh, gives us hope with no content. I mean, if you just look around at the largest churches in America, most of them are filled with messages that are just mush. There's very little biblical content there at all, but they manage to make people feel good. And so people go because they don't want to think, they just want to feel good and have hope. And I've talked to people who've actually told me that. Where do you go to church? Well, I go down here. Why do you go there? makes me feel good. I don't want to think. Okay, at least you're honest. <laughs> Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, some translations may have apostasy there, and there are those that teach that and take this as apostasy because, as we'll see, the Greek word that's there is the uh, noun apostasia. And so people say, well, first of all, we have to have this great end times apostasy, and then Jesus will come back. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, that would be a sign. How can it be imminent if there's a sign of the rapture? The word apostasia means departure. That's its basic core semantic meaning. It means departure. It can mean departure from truth, and that's what we call apostasy. Or it can mean departure as a ship leaving a pier or leaving port. It can mean uh, departure if you leave from your home and depart on a trip. And so the word should be translated here as departure, that that day will not occur unless the departure, that is the rapture, comes first. It's a great rapture passage. And the man of sin is revealed. The man of sin is not revealed until the rapture comes first. Then the man of sin, another title, as we'll see, for the, uh, for the Antichrist, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And that word perdition is a term that is used of those who perish, same Greek word that we have in John 3.16, that uh, none should perish. It's also used to describe uh, Judas Iscariot and is used of those who are completely and totally uh, lost because they have rejected Christ as Savior. He's the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. He will exalt himself in God's place as a substitute Messiah. That's, as we'll see, is the meaning of Antichrist, not someone who is just opposed to Christ, but one who is offered as a substitute Messiah, he will exalt himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God. And that is what we've studied in the past couple of weeks is the abomination of desolation that occurs at the midpoint in the tribulation when the Antichrist will set up his own statue, an image of himself, in the temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped as God. And that begins the final stage of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, known as the Great Tribulation. So, Paul goes on to say to the Thessalonians, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He covered a lot of material in those three weeks. He says, And now you know what is restraining. Now, that is an important concept to understand because the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit currently is 
alive and active on planet Earth. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the dynamic force in the church. The Holy Spirit is very much present during the church age, restraining evil. You just think things are bad. You don't have a clue as to how bad things can be until the Holy Spirit is taken away and men are basically given over to fulfill their greatest uh, desires in hostility to God. So uh, Paul says, you now you know what is restraining, that is the Holy Spirit, that he may be revealed, that is the Antichrist will be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and that is the increase of sin and evil and opposition to God, which you see during the church age. And if you think about it, since the Reformation occurred in the early 1500s, and then the birth of the Enlightenment in the 1600s, man has been given more and more intellectual autonomy to reject God and to develop all kinds of uh, systems to rationalize and justify his independence from God and so that most Americans, even a lot of Christians, so-called Christians, are functional atheists because they have bought into a system of thinking, a worldview that comes out of this uh, period of time, especially the 19th century, that is built on atheism, built on Marxism and socialism, and built on Darwinism. And really, these are the this is the evil triplet of the 19th century. And I really don't believe you can consistently have one without the other. And what we have seen since the 19th century is an increase in the uh, utopic mentality of the uh, Western civilization in Europe. You saw the attempt to establish a utopic empire, uh, Bismarck, in the late 19th century up to the Kaiser in World War I and Hitler and the Nazis is national socialism and their use, as we saw in the film the other night, their use of, of social Darwinism to uh, justify and promote their entire agenda and uh, their uh, anti-Semitism and the uh, destruction and annihilation of the Jews. But see, Marxism and socialism are utopic, and they don't go along simply with uh, the kind of overt evil. It's often masquerades as in a lot of other forms. And we've seen that in American history since World War I. You see this uh, political move from um, Woodrow Wilson, World War I, Roosevelt, the the, the the attempt to bring in a utopia to solve the problems of man. Those of you who've heard me talk about this, I'll trace it back to the post-millennial shifts that, that occurred in theology and in society, both in liberal theology and in among so-called evangelicals in the early 19th century. And so we've been plagued with this mentality in America that we can create a perfect society. That is messianic in its very core. And the men who promoted this were men who had a flawed biblical theology, often rejecting uh, at its core total depravity. And that's really the issue, is if you don't believe man is the center that Scripture says, then you believe that man is 
salvageable and perfectible and that society can do it. And so your approach to solving man's problems is going to be completely different from those who believe in the total corruption of every human being by Adam's sin. And that's your, that is really your, your dividing line. And since the 19th century, we've had politicians, and it doesn't depend on what party you're, you're in. It's happening in both parties, uh, that they think they can bring in a utopia, solve, uh, bring in world peace and solve health problems and solve the economic problems of the world. And every time that there's a, a blip in any kind of economic uh, market, what you see is the president and you see um, other economic leaders the chairman of the Fed, uh, immediately attempt to manipulate the market in order to solve the problem. And this is nothing more than arrogance. It's a messianic complex. We have the League of Nations developed uh, out of World War I. The U United States never joined it, but that was the brainchild of Woodrow Wilson, and it was just another, an early form of internationalism. Then you have the UN, and the UN claims for itself a messianic ability that they can bring in world peace. All of these things are systems that mirror exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. And if you watch how, how Western civilization has been pushed more and more to the left, more and more to this utopic idea, even conservatives now feel to, to even have any kind of, of uh, uh, platform on a national level, are succumbing to the socialist mentality of a universal health care. And, and nobody understands that all of this grows out of a basic concept that man thinks man can solve his problems through some sort of corporate leadership or government. And it's a rejection of the fact that the basic problem that we have is every single one of us is a spiritually dead, corrupt sinner. And the only solution is at the cross. It's not a political solution. No government, no human leader will ever solve these social problems. And that's, but that's what the Antichrist will do. He will come along as a substitute Christ and make these claims. And so he is, it just increases lawlessness, and in the context of Scripture, that is a rejection of God's absolutes. And in 1 Thess 2.9, we read, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. He will be indwelt and empowered by Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He will perform legitimate miracles and healings and raising from the dead, but it's in the power of Satan, not God's power, with all unrighteous deception. And so that we read in other passages that if the Lord tarried, even the elect would be deceived. That's how, how good this counterfeit will be. Yesterday I went to see a movie. If you get a chance to see it, I encourage you to. It's about what took place in, uh, in Nazi Germany with a group of, uh, some were Jewish criminals, some were just printers, and uh, others in the, in the whole printing art business, artists, engravers, and how the Nazis used them, brought them out of the worst places in, in, uh, in the concentration camps, brought them together at Sachsenhausen in order to uh, put together a team of counterfeiters to counterfeit the English pound, 
uh, note and the American dollar so that they could flood the, the world with counterfeit dollars and counterfeit British pounds and destroy the economy of Britain and America. Uh, and this occurred at the end of the war. They were able to, they were somewhat successful with the British pound, but the war ended just before they were going to release um, just before they were going to release the U.S. dollars. And these counterfeiters were so good at counterfeiting the British pound that they pushed it when they, they took uh, uh, some experimental notes just to see how good they were to Switzerland to put them in a bank and said, you know, we're not sure if we got these from a, from a legitimate source, so would you re- would check them out, make sure they're not counterfeit. And so the Swiss bankers came back and said they're not counterfeit. Well, we're not sure. Could you send them to the Bank of England and have them uh, certify them? And so they were sent to the Bank of England, and the Bank of England certified them as legitimate. That's how good the counterfeit of those dollars. That's the kind of counterfeit the Messiah, this this anti-Messiah, the Antichrist will be. His people will just be attracted to his personality, his style, his speaking, everything. They will just uh, they'll stop thinking. They will just uh, devote themselves completely to him, thinking that he is the answer to all of their problems. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And then in verse 11, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, and that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, we have to look very carefully to make sure that we do not be, we are not deceived by the wolves that come in among the sheep. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure that everybody was awake and still alert. So when Jesus warned to the false messiahs and the false prophets, he distinguished those categories in Matthew 24. He said there will be false Christ, and the word Christos in the Greek is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is the anointed or appointed one. And so he said there will be not only false prophets, but also false Christ. The end times we have the two beasts that will appear in Revelation. The first beast is the one whom we normally refer to as the Antichrist, and the second beast is the false prophet. So he warns that there will be many false uh, messiahs, and they will take on a messianic role. And it is the role of the Messiah of Israel to bring world peace. It is the role of the Messiah to bring in a solution to uh, sickness and illness and all the travails of humanity. He is the one who will bring in true true health? He would be the he will be the healer of the nations, and so part of the role of these false messiahs is to promise all of these uh, promises related to health care, related to ending poverty, uh, all of these kinds of things will mark their uh, will will mark the antichrist message and. Uh, program as well as these other pseudo Christs, and we see patterns of that even today. And as I pointed out, from the 19th century to the present, this is more and more the agenda 
of Western governments. And, and as to do that, the government has to solve the problem. That's called either socialism or Marxism. And to increase Marxism and socialism, to increase the power of the government, you have to take freedom and liberty away from the people. And you have to destroy their ability and their desire to solve their problems on their own and to live their lives in pure independence of government and be, being accountable only uh, to God. But it always looks good and it always sounds good and it always appeals to people because they don't, without doctrine, without the truth of God's word and the categories from God's word, we just don't have what we need in order to spot the counterfeit. <laughs> so we come to the use of the word antichrist. Antichrist is a term that's only used one time in the scripture, in one chapter in the scripture, but it's become the most common title for the first beast of Revelation. And this is used in 1 John 2.18 and again in 2.22, where John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. Satan has his Antichrist. Some people thought it was Napoleon. Maybe it would have been. Some people think it was Bismarck. It might have been if the rapture had occurred. Some people thought it was Hitler. Possibly it would have been if the rapture had occurred. Others think it might be Saddam Hussein or the Ayatollah Khomeini. Who knows? Uh, but... Satan has his system and his man in place in every generation. Now, the term Antichrist refers to a substitute Christ, one who is not just one who is against Christ, but one who claims to do only what the Messiah can do. And so he comes in promising messianic things, and people are attracted to him because they think he will solve their problems. Now, we just covered the first two points out of about 16 points on the Antichrist, so we can understand this first judgment. We'll come back next time, and we will begin to look at some of the other passages. We've gone through two New Testament passages, and we have two Old Testament passages to deal with, and we'll look at those next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much that we have had this opportunity to study your word, to look at these things, to be reminded that, that we live in Satan's world and that the political systems of the nations are influenced by an uh, inherent antagonism to you as they, uh, as they attempt to do what only you can do and to provide peace and stability and happiness to people, that which can only be found by a, a relationship with Jesus Christ and the application of doctrine. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. When we are born, we are born helpless. We are born spiritually dead. There's nothing we can do to gain merit with God. But God loved us in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross for us, that by simply trusting in him, believing in him, we might have eternal life. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all your sin. It's not about what you have done. It's about what Jesus Christ did. It's about his payment and what you're relying upon to give you, to give you approval before God. And that is only Jesus Christ and his righteousness. 
When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that instant God credits to you the righteousness of Christ. And it is that righteousness that is the basis for his declaration of our justification and our eternal life. Father, we pray if there's anyone here that's unsaved, that they would take this opportunity to make sure that they have trusted in Christ as their Savior. For the rest of us, we need to take heed to the warning that we be not deceived and that we do not become distracted by the priorities and the systems of the world, but that we fortify our souls with the truth of your word. We pray that you would challenge us with these things in Jesus' name. Amen.